So by a quick show of hands, how many of you have ever heard the phrase or even used the phrase, I'm going all in? Anybody? That's pretty much everybody. People say it all the time. And thanks to the late 90s, early 2000s Texas Hold'em craze, it, it actually entered into the everyday parlance of, of, of uh, conversation. People say all the time, I'm, I'm going all in, whether they're playing the game or not. Now, if you've ever played Texas Hold'em, you know the thrill of going all in. Sometimes your back's up against the wall. Sometimes you're trying to, to, to make a move. But it's that moment in the game where you wager all that you've got. You literally push all your chips to the middle. You can't back out. Once you've said all in, you're all in. All your chips are pushed to the middle. And now you give your fate over to the cards. And it's a dramatic moment because there's only two possible scenarios. You either win the hand or you lose everything. Now on one hand, I get it. The phrase is way overused today. You see it everywhere Businesses have, a, have adopted it as a slogan. You'll see it in political campaigns, sports interviews, self-help therapy mantras, and the list goes on. I've actually, this is no joke, had conversations at the table where someone said, Hey, Clint, Pastor, I'm ready to go all in on Jesus. And then moments later say, I'm going to go all in on this burrito. So I get it. The phrase has lost some of its punch. But. If we step back a minute, a minute and go back to the origin of that phrase, to actually, to really go all in is a dramatic moment of decision. You're taking a risk. In that moment, you're, you're pushing past the, the fear of what ifs and you're making an unwavering commitment. It's saying yes to something and no to everything else in a definite and clear way. And when you go all in, there's no doubt where you stand. This idea of going all in captures the very heart of Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Paul is urging us all to go all in with Jesus. And not in a flippant and thoughtless manner, but to really consider who God is and what he's done for us. And then make a decisive commitment to go all in. All of you given to all of God. All of you given to all of God. And instead of drawing on Texas Hold'em imagery, Paul is going to draw on sacrificial imagery. Where a, 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 an animal is presented as a sacrifice. But in this case, instead of an animal being presented, Paul is going to talk about our very selves being presented, climbing up on the altar and giving our lives as a living sacrifice. It's a dramatic picture of going all in. And in typical Pauline fashion, he's going to make a compelling argument in three movements. First, Paul's going to give us the motivation, the motivation of our sacrifice. As we ask, what would possibly compel us to give up our lives in complete devotion to Christ? Second, we'll see the presentation. What does it mean to present or to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Finally, Paul will talk about the transformation. 
Because in God's kindness, giving our lives, climbing up on the altar of sacrifice doesn't consume us, but actually transforms us. So we'll see the motivation, the presentation, and the transformation. Let's start in verse 1 together. Paul says, I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God. Let's stop there. When you see that word, therefore, particularly in letters, in, in epistolary literature, in the New Testament, you need to ask this question. What's the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? And here... It acts as a hinge for the book. It's, it, this is one of the, the big movements um, in the book. See, in the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans, you've got Paul's magnum opus of doctrine. It's one of his later letters. It's his largest one. He's had time to really contemplate and think about the work of Christ. And he lays it all out there. Really, in the book of Romans, you get his most complex, his, his deepest thoughts of Christianity. If you want to know the basic beliefs of doctrine of Christianity, read the book of Romans. It's all there. It's one of the most important pieces of literature in the entire history of all literature. And because we're beginning a new series and we're jumping right into Romans 12, this new series we're calling Transform, we're going to walk slowly and methodically through Romans chapter 12. I'm just doing two verses today. But we haven't spent time. Normally what we do as a church is we start at the beginning of a book and we walk through chapter by chapter. But we haven't spent time in uh, in these first 11 chapters. And so I'm going to catch us up to speed. Give you kind of a flyby of Romans 1 through 11. So here's the Cliff Notes version of of Romans. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul says sin has ruptured the goodness of God's creation. Paul says everything's out of balance. Our thinking has become futile. Our hearts have become darkened. Um, We look at evil things and we call them good. And we look at good things and we call them evil. In other words, we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's the fundamental problem. We worship creation rather than the creator. Paul's saying at, at, at the very basics of our problem is we are just prone and given to taking things of God's creation and elevating them to the status of God and giving our lives and worshiping them instead of the creator. And and then Paul says, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is guilty. Every single one of us in this room has done that and is doing it and will continue to do it. And therefore, we are without excuse. And God's righteous judgment, his wrath and condemnation for sin is coming. It's on its way. Romans 3, verses 19 to 18 and 23 summarizes this first section well. Paul says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin, under the condemnation of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lisp. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is true of every one of us. Therefore, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the first part of Romans. Then, at the end of chapter 3, going into chapter 5, Paul outlines God's gift of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He draws on some Old Testament saints to show this has been God's program from the very beginning. It's always been by grace through faith alone. We aren't saved by works, meaning you can't earn your salvation. You can't do enough good things to outweigh the bad things that you've done. God does not work by karma, but by grace. God does not work by merit, but by grace. And God the Father sent God the Son and the person and work of Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life of righteousness. And all the ways that we have failed, Christ succeeded. He was perfect. There was never deceit on his lips. He was not quick and swift to shed blood. He taught and lived the way of peace. And so his life of righteousness becomes the basis for our justification. I know we shy away from big words sometimes. That's one you need to learn. It just means how does a person get right with God? If it's true that there is none righteous before God, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the question then becomes, how does someone get right with God? And that's what justification is all about. And Paul outlines, verse by verse, that we are justified by faith alone and grace alone. And what's more, Jesus gave up his life. He stood in our place, condemned He stood for our sin in our place so that we could be justified and reconciled with God. See, someone had to pay. Because of our sin, it demands bloodshed. And so Christ stood in our place. That's why the cross is necessary. God cannot be unjust and just overlook sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And it was dealt with on the cross. Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Looking at our helpless plight, God the Father sent Christ the Son to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, so that in him we might have life. Then in chapter 6 to 8, Paul outlines the theology of, here's your second big word of the day, sanctification. You see, it's not enough that God just justifies us. That, if, if, if that were it, salvation would be truncated. It would be cut off. It's not the total and complete work because we want to be made right with God, but we also want to become righteous. That's what sanctification is. It's where we learn how to put sin to death and cultivate a life of godliness. Here Paul says that the heartbeat of sanctification is our union with Christ. So here's the beauty. We get joined to Jesus so that Death and sin no longer have dominion over 
us. In Christ, the penalty has been paid. And in Christ, the power of sin is weakened and loosened so that we can say yes to godliness and no to sinfulness. We've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. And because of our union with Jesus, the power of sin and its hold on us has been broken and we're free to walk in the newness of life that Jesus purchased for us. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, look at me. No temptation has seized you. You're not, you're not bound anymore. And you really can say no to sin. You can. Because you're joined to Jesus. And his life is in you. And the power of sin no longer has dominion over you. You can say no. Romans 6, 4. We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6 to 8. Then in Romans 9 to 11, Paul talks about the sovereign plan of God to create one people, one family of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And in the end, when everyone sees the fullness of God's redemptive plan, everyone will stand back and go, amazing. Look at the beauty of his grace and will praise his glorious name. Romans 10, 12 to 13, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 1 through 11. Now why is that recap so important? It's because Paul is saying, keep all of that in mind. Therefore, based on everything that I've just said, keep all of that in mind as you consider what I'm going to say next. The rest of the book, Romans 12 through 16, Paul is going to lay out the implications of all of this theology. All of the richness that I just gave you the clip notes of, Paul's going to say... It, it is going to change things. You can't just take that and go, that's great. It's supposed to change you. And Romans 12 through 16 is going to talk about the implications of that theology. In other words, Paul's saying, in the next several chapters, I'm going to lay out matters of devotion and duty, but it's all grounded in the doctrine that I've just talked about. There is an inseparable link between doctrine, devotion, and duty. It's all tied together. Our beliefs are intricately connected to our behaviors and vice versa. Knowing must lead to doing. Information can't stay as information. It must lead to transformation. The indicatives, the true things of the gospel must lead to imperatives. Learning must lead to living. In other words, the ethics of Jesus, living out your faith in Jesus, rests on the foundation of the redemption accomplished by Jesus. The ethics of Jesus are built on the foundation of the redemption of Jesus. Now with that background, Paul says, Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Now you notice I said brothers and sisters. That's because in the New Testament, whenever you see the word brothers, that's shorthand for brothers and sisters. 
This is what's called a plural inclusive, which means brothers and sisters. Like when I say, hey guys, listen, I don't mean just the men. I'm, I'm saying everyone in the room, hey guys, listen to me. See, the church was comprised of men and women, brothers and sisters in the faith. And it's really important to remember that this letter was not just written in a vacuum. It's written to real people going through real things to a real church in Rome that was comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, there's a litany of things they disagree on. There is an incredibly short fuse when it comes to the tensions that divide them. And Paul is using this familial language, brother and sister, family language to say, listen, irrespective of your differences, irrespective of the divisions that divide you, you are family. Like really and truly, you are more family than you know. Brothers and sisters with the blood of Jesus Christ flowing through your vein. And therefore, you are brothers and sisters. And because we're family, we're in this together. And this call, what I'm about to tell you is for every single one of us. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, I exhort you, I implore you with everything I have. I I appeal to you. I am trying to persuade you. Paul is making an argument. He is making an appeal. He is trying to persuade and convince you that what he's about to say is of critical importance. We live in a culture that on one hand says, hey, you do you. Just believe what's best for you. And you know what? It's wrong, morally wrong, to try to convince someone of your beliefs. Like you should never um, try to tell someone, hey, this is what I think is actually true. You're not supposed to do that. But on the other hand, it's the same culture that says if you don't believe like we do, we're going to cancel you. It's kind of hypocritical. And Paul says, I don't have time for that nonsense. He is straightforward. He is direct. He is honest. He's not hiding the fact that he's trying to persuade you. Listen, our culture is trying to persuade you. There is no neutrality, neutrality to what is going on. They're trying to convince you of what is good, true, and beautiful. And Paul's at least intellectually honest enough to say, so am I. I'm trying to urge you to what is good, true, and beautiful. I appreciate that. I appreciate his directness. I urge you. Paul's saying, with everything I have, listen. He is pleading with his brothers and sisters to listen to what he has to say and to go all in. I urge you, he says. Now here's the motivation of his whole argument. By the mercies of God. What is the motivation for us to give our lives as a living sacrifice? It's because of the mercies of God. Paul's about to tell them to go all in for Jesus. He's about to tell them to give up their whole life as a living sacrifice. And the motivation, the reason that you would say yes to that call is because of the mercy and grace of God. What Paul is doing here is he's drawing a connection between our comprehension of what God has done and our level of commitment. Do you see that connection? He's saying, I urge you by the mercies of God, think about, comprehend, understand all that Christ has done for you and the level to which you get that. It will drive your commitment to him. In other words, the more you meditate 
and contemplate on the mercies of God, the more you consider the gift of his grace, it will compel and drive you to the deepest commitment to him. This is what Isaac Watts meant when he wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know what he's saying? Sometimes I think we sing songs without really thinking about the words. He's saying, if I had the whole realm of nature, like it was mine, like I was the God of every, I had ownership of everything. And I thought about how much God has given to me, giving the whole realm of the universe back to God as an offering would be far too small. He's saying the only thing because of the generosity and love of God, the only thing worth giving that could actually be a, an adequate offering is my life and my all. It's got to cost me something. So when we find our level of commitment wavering, when you find your motivation lacking to go all in, Paul's saying you've lost sight of the mercies of God. You've taken them for granted. You aren't considering the depth of what God has given you. You've taken them for granted. You've not really considered and felt the weight of all that you've been given. See, apart from Christ, this is what should be true of you. You should be guilty, shamed, outcast, orphaned, condemned, and dead. That's what should be our lot. But by the mercies of God, the whole script has been flipped. So you're forgiven. You're accepted. You're received. You're beloved. You're forgiven and alive. And if that doesn't motivate you to go all in with Jesus, then my friend, you don't understand the gospel. Something hasn't, the flip hasn't, uh, the switch has not been flipped. You don't understand the weight and the depth of your sin. You don't understand the hopelessness of your situation apart from Christ. And you certainly don't understand what it means when Paul says that we were still enemies, traitors, when Christ died for you and me. Friends, I urge you to look and look again at the mercies of God until you are moved and motivated to sing and to really mean it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The mercies of God is the only motivation for us to say, I am going all in. All of me given to all of God. Second, Paul's going to give us the presentation of the offering. Romans 12, 1, the second half. Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now it's here that Paul draws on this imagery of sacrifice. Now think about who he's writing to. Both Jew and Gentile would have been deeply steeped in the world of sacrifice. Both cultures gave sacrifice. 
And this word to present, it's a technical term used in the ritual of sacrifice. So nobody reading this would be misunderstanding Paul. He's saying to present a sacrifice is to bring the sacrificial animal, to slaughter it, to place it on the altar so that it could be consumed by fire. Now there's two things I want us to see in this verse. First, giving yourself as a living sacrifice is a picture of total commitment. It's total commitment. See, when a sacrifice is given, it's not part of it. It doesn't go on living afterwards. All of that animal is given to all of God, isn't it? That, that animal is making a total commitment. We aren't called to give some of ourselves, but all of ourselves, both physically and spiritually. All of us given to all of God. That's what it means to present or to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. When Paul says to offer our bodies, it's a Hebrew way of saying your whole self. In other words, Paul's saying climb up on the altar. Get up there. So spiritually, this is a call to give our minds, our hearts, our desires, our dreams, our feelings, our emotions, all of them to God. Physically, we're giving our hands, our day-to-day tasks, our careers, our hobbies, All of us in glad submission to Christ. In other words, we're saying, Lord, use my mind, my heart, my feelings, my body, my every day for your will and your glory. John Stott is so helpful here. He says, so we are to offer the different parts of our bodies, not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in his paths, our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who've fallen and perform the many mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning and typing and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved, our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. In other words, brothers and sisters, look at me. Giving our lives as a living sacrifice to God means there's nothing, not one part of you that can be held back. All of us and everything we do. It's a total commitment. Second thing is, the picture Paul is painting here is one of paradox. You hear that? A living sacrifice. It seems like those two things are at odds. A sacrifice is meant to be killed, but how can it be a living sacrifice? Now to be clear... We aren't going to actually die. We aren't being literally sacrificed. That's why it's a living sacrifice. Jesus is the once uh, given for all sacrifice to pay and atone for sin. But yet at the same time, there is a death involved here. The death of our pride. The death of our selfish desires. The death of our personal autonomy to do things my way for my glory. Do you remember the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He said, the first Christ suffering that everyone has to experience is the call which summons us away from our attachments to this world. It's the death of the old self in the encounter with Jesus Christ. Those who enter into discipleship enter into Jesus' death. They turn their living into dying. Such has been the case from the very beginning. The cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. Instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you were to read that in the German, it literally reads, 
every call of Christ leads into death. That's the sacrifice. The death being described here, the sacrifice being described here is the death of my autonomy and my self-reliance. But at the same time, paradoxically, we're called to live a living sacrifice in the sense that we're walking and living in the newness of life that Christ gives us. This sacrifice is further described as holy and acceptable or pleasing to God. In other words, Paul is saying there is a kind of life, there is a kind of way of living that is a pleasing aroma to God. A life that is holy and set apart. It's a life that's committed to renouncing sin and repenting when we fail to do so. This kind of sacrificial life is a pleasing aroma to God. Again, this is borrowing on that sacrificial imagery, this pleasing aroma when an animal was burned on the altar of sacrifice as the smoke is going up, it smelled like a barbecue, which smells good, doesn't it? Right? It's a pleasing aroma. It's a life given to God. Now, this isn't new. You see this throughout the New Old Testament too. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you, will do not, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is a picture of total commitment. All of you given to all of God. But it's also totally reasonable. Not only is it a total commitment, but it's also totally reasonable. Did you see at the end of this verse when Paul says, this is your spiritual worship the ESV translates a Greek word that they translate spiritual. It's the Greek word logikos. Logikos. Now, if you're thinking about it, what does that word sound like? Logikos. Logical, right? Logic. That's where we get our word logical. And that's really the point. What Paul is saying here, it's, it's logical, it's rational, it's reasonable. In fact, the ESV has a little footnote that says this word can also be translated like this as well. And I don't want to get into the long history of translation and why people go back and forth on it. But here's the point Paul is making. In light of all that God has done, when you really consider it, giving your life to him is really the only rational and reasonable thing to do. In other words, half-hearted commitment or this halfway response to God is irrational. See, to give part of your life to God and to keep the other parts to yourself based on what God has done is illogical. It fails to appropriately consider all that God has done for you. So in other words, when you fully and truly see all that God has done for you in Christ, the only rational, reasonable thing to do is to give all of you to all of him. Give all of you to all of him. Did Christ give part of himself to you? No. He gave all of himself to you. That's why we can sing another Isaac Watts hymn. Why can we sing it's well with my soul? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? The whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. We aren't saved in part, but in whole. Christ didn't partly die for you, but gave up all of his life for you. 
Again, because of the lavish mercies and grace of God, failure to dedicate your life to him is the height of folly and irrationality. Don't miss this. Look what Paul's doing in Romans 1.25. I know we didn't read that today, but he says that the fundamental problem of sin expresses itself in humanity in that, here it is, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. The problem with humanity is we worship creation. Now Paul's saying as a living sacrifice, we can get back to living as we were created, which is your rational worship, your reasonable worship. Do you see what he's saying? We can get back to how he created us, worshiping God instead of serving and worshiping creation. Both verses use the same word for worship. Paul's saying the fundamental problem is we worship wrongly. Now, after all that God has done for us in Christ, Romans 12 says, we can get back to living the way God has intended, worshiping God rightly with all that we have given to all of him. It's a life of worship. Here's the reality. No one in this room, doesn't matter who you are, young or old, no one in this room gets to decide if they will worship. You know why? We are fundamentally creatures of worship. The only question is, what will you worship? Everybody worships. Everybody loves and adorns something. Everybody holds up something as true, good, and beautiful. Everyone holds up something as worthwhile to give your life to. David Foster Wallace, who was a public intellectual and writer, also not a Christian, agrees. Look look what he wrote. He said, because here's something else that's weird but true. Which is him saying, listen, I don't necessarily want this to be true, but it kind of is true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. You know why? Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. That's Paul's point too. He says you're going to worship something. And when you come to believe the gospel and to consider all that Christ has done for you, the only reasonable and rational and logical thing to do is to totally give your life to Jesus as a living sacrifice. To present your life as a living sacrifice is a decision to go all in with God. To go all in with Jesus. All of you given to all of God. That's what it means to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now let's look at verse 2 to see the transformation. Romans 12, 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now if you think about The sacrificial imagery, sacrifices are burned on the altar. They are consumed. But in Paul's metaphor, when we present our bodies as living sacrifices, we aren't consumed but transformed. And here Paul offers two commands. One negative, one positive. The first one, do not be conformed. The second one, be transformed. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Now this word for conformed means to be formed according to to a pattern. So think about 
um, melting something like gold, okay? Gold's in its solid state. You heat it up, and it melts, right? And it becomes liquid. And if you pour it into a mold, what happens? It gets into all of the contours, and when, you, when it cools, you take it out, it, it makes an impression. It looks like whatever that mold was, right? It, feel, it fills all the contours, and it's formed according to the pattern. That's what this word means. It means to be formed according to the pattern. So what Paul is saying is, don't be formed according to the pattern of this world. This world has a mold. It has a pattern. And you will be conformed to it. Humans are by our very nature imitators. We can't help but be formed by things. We can't help but be shaped by things. We're very malleable. We're very moldable. And Paul recognizes that. And he says, don't be formed according to this world. If you just sit back and passively receive the world, you will be conformed by it. It will happen to you. That's why Paul gives a positive command and says, instead of that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Paul's saying, no matter who you are or when you became a Christian, here's what's true of you. You have been formed according to the patterns of this world. And therefore, in order to change, you need to be transformed. And that begins by renewing or a rebirth of your mind. The word for transformed here is metamorphosis. Which sounds like another word we know. It means to change from one thing to another. Think of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, a tadpole being metamorphosed into a frog. It's a dynamic change such that when you look at the thing before and you see what it's become, they don't even look like the same thing anymore. Butterflies do not look like caterpillars. Frogs do not look like tadpoles. There's a fundamental difference. There's another place where Paul uses this same Greek word to speak about transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, same word, into the same image, that's the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What Paul has in mind here is a fundamental change of our character and conduct away from the patterns of this world into the image of Christ himself. You think the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly is cool? You haven't seen anything yet. The transformation of who we are right now from one degree of glory into another until we are formed into the image of Christ. There's coming a day when we'll see that. And it will blow your mind. It will be one of the most beautiful and spectacular things you have ever seen. Such that there is nothing on this earth. It's good for us to go out into nature and to gaze upon the glory of his creation. One of my favorite things is to stand at the base of a mountain and just feel small. And to go up 
and see the vastness. It leads me to worship, but it is a, an image and a beauty that pales into comparison to what God has in store for you. And I mean you and you and you and every single person in this room. It's incredible what God is going to do with you. Think again about Romans 1. Because of sin, our minds are given to futility and degradation and hardness of heart. And Romans 12 says there can be a reversal. There can be a renewal. A change unlike anything you've ever been through before. So Paul says, don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. There are two competing value systems out there. John Stott again says there are two value systems, this world's and God's. And they're incompatible. Friends, they're in direct collision with one another. Whether we're thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life, or about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, Ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, religion, or anything else. These two sets of standards diverge so completely that there's no possibility of compromise. There's no way these two value systems can live together. So if you're going to go all in with Jesus, if you're going to give yourselves wholly and completely to him, Paul says you've got to be renewed in your minds in every way. So let me ask you something. Are your politics conformed to the pattern of this world? Or are they being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Are your definitions of right and wrong conformed to the patterns of this world? Is your ambition formed to the patterns of this world? Are your goals, your purposes in life, or what it means to be a husband or a wife, are they conformed to the patterns of this world? Is what it means to be a man or a woman conformed to the pattern of this world? Or is it being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Is what it means to be an honest person conformed to the patterns of this world? Or being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Basic questions like what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean in just the everyday stuff of life? Literally everything needs to be rethought, reworked, renewed so that it's not conformed to the patterns of this world. But transformed into the image of Christ. Now if all of that is overwhelming, breathe for just a minute. Take a breath. God does not expect transformation to happen overnight. He also doesn't redeem you and leave the work of transformation and sanctification in your hands. Because trust me, we'd fail at that too. Remember the words of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. The life of sanctification, this life of renewal is a process over time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Salvation from beginning to end Justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it belongs to the Lord. Praise his name for that. And what's more, this command to be transformed 
is in, uh, grammatically, it's in the passive mood. Now, you don't need to be a nerd like I am, but here's what that means. Transformation, pictured here, this command to be transformed is a passive thing. It's an active work of the Lord. He's the one who transforms us. Now, that doesn't mean we sit back and are passive and lazy and say, okay, God, I'm gonna just sit here, do your work. That's not how it works. That's why these are real commands, real calls to real action. We are involved in God's transformation project. But the goal of it and the completion of it, here's the good news, is not in your hands. He will see it to completion. And what happens in this work of transformation, the last part of this verse says, we'll be able to test and discern God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. It's one of the most frequently asked questions I get as a pastor. What is God's will? What is God's will? First of all, Paul tells us your, God's will is your sanctification. You see that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. But here's another insight into that, that uh, uh, discernment. As God transforms us, as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ, we will be able to discern and appreciate God's will. We'll find that as we are transformed, obedience leads to delight. Maybe at the beginning of your walk, obedience looks like just sheer duty. And that's okay. But as you grow, as you mature, you will see that it really is the better path. And you'll add delight to that duty. So here's how it works. First, our minds are renewed by the word of God. And the spirit helps us to see what is really good, true, and beautiful. And as you continue to spend time saturating yourself, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you will see how God's will stands in contradistinction to the patterns of this world. And as you're being transformed, you will reject the world's values and ideas and replace them with the values and ideas of Christ. Now think about it. You cannot be renewed if your only input is what is already conformed to this world. In other words, if the only thing you're taking into your mind is conformed to the patterns of this world, what do you expect will happen? It matters what you're consuming. There is no neutrality. What you're consuming will transform you. That's why daily Bible reading and study is so critical, so that our minds can be renewed by the word of God. And second, as our minds are renewed, we will become increasingly more able to discern and desire the will of God. So here's what happens. Transformation occurs incrementally day by day. As you uh, saturate yourself with the word of God, God uses that word. It's alive and active. It starts to shape and change you. And you're growing even when you don't recognize it. I think about my children and how they grow incrementally every day. And because I'm around them so often, I don't see their incremental growth. It's small and it's incremental and it, and it doesn't look like anything's happening. But then what happens? Every season, shoes don't fit. Pants become high waters, right? And then you go, look, you must have grown. The pants didn't shrink. The shoes didn't shrink. What's grown here? You've grown incrementally day by day. And the same thing happens with us. 
We're growing and changing bit by bit, day by day, but we don't see it. But here's what happens. A situation comes and you respond differently than you would have before. You hold your tongue when normally you would have spoken out of pride. You choose the pathway of honesty when lying had been your normal routine. You see, we give up comfort in order to serve a brother or sister where maybe before we would have chosen the path of selfishness. You start to risk for the gospel where you would have chosen the easier path before. And the list goes on and on. And it's in those moments you go, God's doing a work. He's faithful to his word. Something is happening and changing in me. In fact, that's what the rest of Romans 12 was all about. Paul's going to go verse by verse and show us and call us to a transformed life. I really hope you would dial into this series as we unpack what that life looks like. Because when you give all of you to all of God, you are not consumed but transformed. Romans 12 is calling us to a total commitment to God. Why on earth would you give up your life for him? Because when you grasp the depth of his sacrifice, giving your all to him is the only logical response. But it's not only logical, it's beneficial. Because when you give all of you to all of him, you're transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Jesus paid it all, so all to him I owe. That's what Romans 12 is all about. All of you given to all of God. Let's pray.